people always say we're, run- we're running out of oil, right? We're not running out of oil. What they mean is we may be running out of oil that we can economically produce at this price. Yeah, yeah. But until we find a substitute for the actual commodity, prices are just going to adjust to you know whatever the capital costs and the cost structure of the business is to, to produce the amount of oil that the, that the world demands. Welcome to The Fort Podcast. I'm Chris Powers, and on this show, I talk to some of the most fascinating minds in business and discuss important topics in the worlds of real estate, entrepreneurship, investing, and more. To learn more, visit thefortpod.com. That's thefortpod.com. I just got done recording with my good buddy, Wilkie Collier, who is the CEO of Contango Oil & Gas. Wilkie is someone I admire a ton and probably understands business and investing as well as anybody I know. Uh, He's just a fascinating guy. We talk a lot about how he got into investing and what it is like to work with John Goff, who's one of the country's most prolific investors. We talk about how he went from being an investor to eventually buying and running as CEO Contango Oil & Gas. We have a lot of fun stories about how that company's been built. We talk about the oil and gas market, and then we bring it home with a discussion just on how he thinks about investing in general and uh, what gets him excited about investing in companies. So thanks for continuing to listen. You will love this episode. I'm really impressed by our team at Four Capital and the newsletter that we've created that we send out quarterly. Talks all about our real estate firm. It talks about our forward thinking and tech-focused culture. And this is really what we believe sets us apart from most real estate companies. We offer exclusive content from Fort Capital's economic strategist, information on the latest acquisitions and dispositions, our top performing podcast episodes, most recent content pieces. You can sign up for our newsletter at fortcapitallp.com. Wilkie, welcome to the show. Thanks for joining me today. Thanks for having me on, Chris. All right. I've known you really ever since we kind of got out of college and you started your career and have really been at one place forever. So I kind of want to start, how did you kind of get to where you are today and, and growing up at Goff? Yeah, so it, you're exactly correct. I mean, I've had a couple of different titles over the years, but uh, really feel like I've kind of worked at one place for my career, which is, you know, incredibly lucky to to be able to to do that and particularly to do it, you know, under the, you know, mentorship of a guy like John Goff. I mean, he's been incredibly successful. He's taught me a ton about variety of things in business and in life. But but most importantly, he's just a, a really good guy. He's a humble guy. He's a fun guy to hang out with. So I just, you know, it's been, I've been incredibly lucky to be able to, you know, kind of learn business under his wing. But yeah, I, I started there in uh, 07. You know, John had just sold Crescent Real Estate to uh, Morgan Stanley in August of 07. You know, it was like the last deal that got done before the financial crisis. And you know, so at that time he was starting a family office and I was lucky enough to get the invite to come just hang around for a few weeks. And I think that's very much John's style is just come hang out and we'll see if there's something you can do. And, you know, like a pickup basketball game, as I think he's called it a number of times. So, you know, I showed up in the fall of 07, knowing basically nothing about everything. You know, I just kind of never left. You know, I started out doing a couple of different things, real estate, you know, he had a two different groups. He was kind of looking at personal real estate. And so uh, managed a, a building in Fort Worth for him that he just owned personally, but he also had a, a private equity firm that at the time was doing, you know, CMBS. So 
I did a little bit of help on that stuff. I, I learned a lot, but I certainly wasn't all that helpful, I don't think. But, uh, you know, the other thing I was doing was was public securities. And, and so, you know, most of our investing exposure while I was there for, you know, call it 10 years was was public equities. And we'd look at private deals and things of that nature, but but we just felt really comfortable in the public markets. John's always been kind of a public markets guy. And so that's, you know, just kind of kind of where I found my niche. And so I'd I'd call the better part of the first, you know, seven, eight years was generalist investing. It's a little bit, I think, maybe backwards from maybe how most people learn about business because you kind of learn about it by doing, but I did a lot of learning kind of in theory. So what do you mean by that? Well, you know, we're looking at investing in whatever XYZ company. I can look at balance sheets. I can, I can read financial statements, but like in terms of really understanding what working capital is or what a working capital swing is intramonth or, you know, how you're going to deal with your creditors or, or, you know, all those kinds of things, they were, they were concepts that I understood, but not things that I, that I, that I feel like I really understood. Yeah. You know, so I, I did a lot of learning from obviously John, but also guys like Warren Buffett, Charlie Munger really was able to learn a lot about, you know, how to think and, and did a lot of work on kind of psychology because I, you know, I, I didn't know a lot, but I, but I was intuitively at least, I think smart enough at the time to know that, you know, the people who said, well, you know, this stock trades at five times EBITDA and this other one trades at seven. So, you know, you buy, buy the five and sell the seven. I mean, it's just kind of, well, that sounds silly. I mean, if that's really how this works, then everybody's going to be good at this. So yeah. you know, I was at least smart enough to, to, to kind of understand that. And so I guess I learned business from the outside in a little bit more than, you know, you'd, you'd normally expect, but like I said, generalist investing, I didn't do a lot of tech or kind of high growth businesses. It was more hard assets, deep value. I, 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 you know, I think just by my nature, I'm a pretty big contrarian. And I think, you know, John would probably say the same. So, you know, that was something that I focused on a lot and, and, you know, kind of found my niche in that, that part of the world. So I had done just kind of generalist stuff for about seven years. I'd handled the oil and gas investments that we had done during that time, just because we're in Fort Worth. And so you, you know, just by location are going to see a lot of deals that come through. So I kind of did the underwriting on a lot of those things. And then, you know, I, I would say, particularly as I got more experienced, but John's, you know, style is concentrated investing. And, and, you know, I'm a huge believer in that. That's kind of the, you don't have a lot of eggs in the basket, but you watch the eggs very, very closely. I think was like, I just butchered a Stan Druckenmiller quote, but uh, I can't, (laughs) it was something like that. And so, uh, you know, really trying to dig deep, understand businesses at a very fundamental level and then bet big when you, when you feel like you've got an edge. So, you know, in 2014, when the OPEC deal happened over over Thanksgiving and oil dropped a bunch, you know, as simplistically as it was, I mean, as simplistic as it was, we looked at a crude chart and said it was at 110 in August and it's at, you know, 50 now. There's got to be something to do here. Uh, and I had enough knowledge to know kind of where to start turning over rocks, I think. So we kind of started with a blank sheet of paper. I took all the rest of the industries that I was covering off my list and 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 we focused solely on oil and gas investing starting in call it January of 15. So started out mainly buying equities and we were, you know, the thesis at the time was 
if you fat or rewind a year before that, call it spring of 2014, you started hearing these people talking about, you know, multiple benches in the Permian and other places, but the Permian was the main focus. But when you'd look at the math on all these things, it would imply that, hey, if all these benches work, you're still, it seems like the market's pricing in a lot of these benches at the time, or they're pricing in higher oil prices, or it's it's something like that. So it it didn't feel like there was much of a margin of safety there. So they had kind of started to preview that and then oil collapsed and everybody said, well, you know, forget about all that stuff that y'all were talking about, effective acreage and all that. So that was really kind of the, the, the main focus for us initially. And we had two buckets. It was kind of good assets, good balance sheet, good assets, bad balance sheet. And, you know, we'll put some money to work, look smart for a little while, you know, first six months, everything was kind of going up and to the right. And then summer and fall of of uh, 15 you had two things happen one was you know oil kind of came back down and the high yield market rolled over and so you know a lot of the names that we were focused on particularly in the good assets bad balance sheet bucket where we had really put less capital on the equity side right you saw those equities really go down a lot but the the good balance sheets really didn't move much and so you know those same companies who had less great balance sheets we could buy their bonds and we've always or i've always liked to focus on small cap businesses rather than large cap i just feel like if there's you know 25 analysts writing on a name it's really hard to have an edge y- you may find it but i but i tend to find that you know it's 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 much harder the other thing is you know we can as, as a family office with just you know the golf family's capital we could put enough capital to work in those businesses to where we would have a voice, whether it's not necessarily in the boardroom, but you know, we call management, they're going to pick up the phone. And that was important to us because we, we, did, we didn't always have to agree with the people we were investing with, but we certainly wanted to make sure that our voice was heard you know, if we thought there were things that made sense. So late 15, early 16, we kind of started deploying capital that was in this good assets, good balance sheet, and moving it over up capital structure into unsecured debt on some of these smaller cap names. And the great thing about those was we found that like anything that was under a billion dollars of kind of unsecured debt outstanding was too small for any of the money centers to get involved in. So you really saw those those bonds collapse. And so, you know, you're buying Resolute Energy was one, Clayton Williams, Legacy Reserves was one, really, really cheap. But so you're buying these bonds at you know 10 to 50 cents on the dollar and you're looking at yield yield the worst of 30 50 60 percent and so we kind of went from being an equity and business analyst to to kind of an amateur lawyer and so all i was doing for six or eight months was you know reading bond indentures and trying to understand credit agreements and how they were all tied together and and you know really the thesis in, in that part of the business or that you know kind of phase of our investing period was I don't want to buy any bonds that first off value's got to be there obviously. But the second thing is I don't want to buy any bonds where there's a complicated capital structure. I want to know that with reasonable certainty that if anything goes wrong here this bond is going to be the fulcrum security. Like yeah. if you've got a second lien and a first lien and a pref and you go into bankruptcy and you got to go argue with all these people, you know, I hadn't experienced that before but but I knew that can be very, very expensive to try and come to an answer on, you know, what the fulcrum security is. You usually have to pay a ransom to various other members of the capital structure just to get them to kind of, to kind of go along. So did that through kind of 16, 
or through early 16 and then Q2 of 16. I mean, all those bonds went and traded up to par with one exception, which was, which was legacy reserves, but we bought that one a lot cheaper. So we had a great year in 2016. A lot of people did that were invested in energy, but just had a ton of success doing that. We had become the largest shareholder of, of Resolute Energy, which was, you know, a big, big win for us that uh, ended up selling in, in 2018. And, you know, another one was Tech Specific Land Trust, which was, you know, kind of a sleepy business. Great. I, I love it when I find a business, even if it's larger cap, if it's got no analyst coverage, you know, it's kind of like being a small cap, you know, it's, it's, you're just, you're not going to have a lot of people who are focused on it. The other, the other aspect that I thought was interesting was just, you know, you don't have a lot of liquidity in that name, or at least at the time. And so I'm always looking for situations where I know I'm not the smartest guy in the room, but if I don't have competition from professional institutional investors, it makes it a lot easier to find value. And so we had a lot of good success with the public markets investing model, but we found that a lot of these businesses did not have high insider ownership and because of that it was it was easy to get the incentives misaligned between the management and the the investors in the business and so you know a lot of those investments that we have made were kind of winding down they'd either been merged into larger companies or or had sold and so we were kind of looking at where are we going to take this next because we still think there's a lot of opportunity here and, you know, there was a situation, Contango Oil and Gas, which is a public company. We had followed it since I probably first looked at it in 08, which was, you know, very early in my career. I had a ton of respect for the founder. It was run for shareholders. It was, you know, a very, you know, shareholder friendly structure. And so just a, a business we had a lot of respect for. It was very tied to natural gas prices. So, you know, we, we didn't own it because we weren't constructive on, on natural gas kind of you know, around that time. And then they ended up tragically, the founder passed away. They merged with a company called Crimson Exploration, which, you know, in a corporate finance textbook would say Crimson's kind of overlevered. They're oily. This is underlevered. It's, it's gassy. You know, it looks nice to put them together. But, you know, I think we found that net of, you know, kind of the strategic direction that was taken in and the, the big drop in commodity prices that company became, you know, somewhat distressed. And, you know, I think one thing in oil and gas that we liked at the time, and we found this in Resolute Energy, which was if you can find a a portfolio or a company that has a portfolio of assets that you've got one asset that, you know, is really a growth engine, but you've got something else that nobody likes, but churns a lot of cash flow out. That can be really interesting because people like, at least at the time, people love pure plays. They didn't want to mess around with anything that was diversified. And so Resolute Energy had this Anna field, which was a CO2 flood in in Utah. And then they had this Delaware Basin asset that was kind of, you know, core of the core, at least, you know, very close to it. But you, you know, you mix the two together and the the lifting costs look kind of off and capital intensity still looks kind of high. But we knew if you, you know, disaggregate those two things, you've got something that can feed the growth of this asset you really like. But the market doesn't really give you credit for that. So mm-hmm. we love that. And and good example, I had a an investment banker come and meet with me and said, you know, look at all these trading multiples. And, you know, if if Resolute gives away this Aneth Field asset, my prediction is that the stock goes up 50% the next day. 
And I went, look, I get all the math you just put on that page, but don't tell me that giving away a $200 million asset is going to make a stock go up 50%. I mean, again, I get the math. That's just, I won't ever believe that because fundamentally I'm just convinced that that's not true. So Contango was a lot like that. They had a a very shallow water offshore natural gas asset. And then they had an asset that was in the Delaware Basin that, you know, we thought you could fuel the growth of that asset with shallow water Gulf of Mexico. Now, that asset in the in the Delaware ten, ended up being not in the core of the core like the uh, Resolute asset was. We thought the, the, the fairway of that play was still maturing, and it was, but it wasn't as core as we thought it'd be. So, but, you know, Contango, that was kind of the thesis is, look, they're, they've got an interesting collection of assets. It's a public company and it's, it's over GNA'd right now. You know, as you can imagine, when these businesses went from 2014 to 2015, you might have had the asset value of these things cut in half or more, but nobody cut their GNA in half. Yeah. And you've got to do that. And Economics 101 tells you, you know, you gotta, you, 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 you've got to <laughs> cut GNA when you know, when your asset value drops or you're just going to kind of bleed to death. And yeah. so, you know, there was a, a shareholder, it was a mutual fund out of Chicago that owned a very large position in this, in this company, which is unusual. But I think that was, you know, they invested based on the founder of, of Contango. And so, you know, I think they had a lot of conviction in his strategy and, and I can't disagree with them. But then, you know, that strategic direction kind of changed when they did the merger because obviously the founder passed away. This mutual fund, you know, we, we just called them up and said, hey, do you want to bid on your 20, I think it was 15% at the time, 15% position. They were way down in it because they had owned it since 2012 or so. We thought maybe they'll want to take a tax loss. And, you know, they at first said, no, it's worth a lot more than this and kind of hemmed and hawed. And a couple months later, they called us back. And so we bought that, you know, literally over a weekend and we went to the board and kind of said like, we're willing to bid on this, but there needs to be change at this company if we're going to buy this, because we're not just going to buy this and watch what's been going on continue to go on. So bought the, uh, bought the position. And real quick, why yeah. would the board, why would they want you to buy it and then change things? Were, did, were they in agreement that they wanted change? Like what, if they were clearly doing the things they were doing it, why would they want to change just because you bought it? Yeah, it's a great question. It was a little bit of a unique situation. It was a very unique situation. I mean, you know, Contango at the time that the founder died was about a billion two of market cap. They had about 200 or $300 million in net cash in the balance sheet and they had eight employees. That's a very unique business. And wow. that's another thing that I love looking for in public markets or anything, but but public markets is is obviously where I spend most of my, or spent most of my time, but looking for these really extreme situations, I think that's where you find outlier companies in terms of, you know, long-term returns. Yeah. Crimson was kind of more of a traditional oil and gas company. So, you know, even though Contango shareholders took 80% of the combined business, 80% of the employees or more than that came from Crimson. Mm. And the board was initially, I think, five and three, five Contango board members, three former Crimson board members. Well, I think some of the Contango board members, two of them ended up saying, yeah, this isn't really for me. They resigned. And so what you had then was you had a six person board, which, you know, an even numbered board is a little, little bit odd in and of itself, but you had three and three. And so I think 
you really, it's easy to get gridlocked when you're in that kind of position. And so when we went to them and said, look, there's got to be a change here. I think they were perhaps looking for a, for a catalyst and, and we were able to be that catalyst. So I had never run a business. I had never managed people other than maybe one at, you know, at, at good golf capital, but over a weekend, John and I went on the board and, and I stepped in as interim CEO. And that was a, a crazy learning experience. Well, to be clear, so part of the, so you go to the board, you, you say, I'm going to buy this mutual funds position for 15%. And then you go to the board and you're like, we want to make some changes. So part of the negotiation was we're going to buy it and we're going to basically take over and I'm going to be the CEO come Monday morning. No. So, so we, we went to them and said, we're going to bid on this, assuming that, you know, the board is supportive of making changes to this business. Cause that's what we think needs to happen for this to be successful. And they said, or at least some of them said, yeah, we're, yeah. we're all for it. So we bought the position and then we started talking to them and negotiating about what is change look like Got here. It. We had already kind of, we were willing to risk the capital knowing that they were willing to make changes. And it was, you know, it was really an, a, a good, you know, kind of mutual decision. You don't see that a lot. I mean, there wasn't a ton of fighting or anything, you know, it's, it's kind of like we can do this the easy way or the hard way. And nobody wants to do this the hard way because it's going to be painful and expensive and time consuming and all those things. And so then it was over a course of, you know, maybe six or eight weeks that we kind of figured out, let's let Wilkie step in we'll go on the board and then go off to the races. When you first bought the position though, did you think that's what it would end up that you would be CEO or is that really what evolved over six day weeks? I, I, I didn't know that by any stretch of the imagination. I, I, I knew that we needed change in the organization and yeah. I didn't necessarily know whether that was who and what that looked like, but we knew that there needed to be a lot of changes. And so at some point during that six or eight weeks, you know, I, I think I told John, like, look, I think I can take this project on. A lot of my other projects are, you know, kind of winding down or in cruise control to some degree. I can still help out on those things, but I think I can go turn this thing around. And he said, go for it. Okay. I envision you've done like all the pre preparation work of your career from 2007 to 2017. I envision that video of Tiger Woods where he comes and he's like, hello world. So you get announced CEO, you've managed one person before. That's just kind of a cool story. So what happens like when you become, you kind of have to learn, I'm now CEO of a big organization. How did you, how'd you do it? Yeah. I mean, we weren't that big at the time. You know, we probably had 25 or 30 people in the office down in Houston and, and probably another 40 or 50 out in the field. So it wasn't tiny. I mean, it was obviously much, much bigger than any other, you yeah. know, it's more than workforce. One. Yeah, exactly. It's, it's <laughs> way bigger than the one that I, that I, you know, sort of managed before that. I knew that it was going to be hard, but I knew that I could do it or I was convinced I could do it. You know, maybe, maybe I wasn't a hundred percent sure, but, That's awesome. I, and I knew, I knew that I was probably the best position person to do it at the time. I, w I wasn't the best, but I may have been the best position. Yep. So I went down to Houston and we went to a, board meeting. And then the next morning they announced the, the change in, in position. Uh, so then for the next 15 months, you know, the focus was kind of step one is let's get our arms around the assets and, and kind of where we're positioned in the market. 
And step two is, you know, and simultaneously, like we have got to cut a massive amount of GNA out of this business if we're going to survive. And I knew it could be done, but I didn't know how I was going to do it because there's only so much you can, you can know from, from public filings. So, you know, I spent the next 15 months, I think the day I started my, my oldest daughter turned five months old. So I was down in Houston and and for the next 15 months, I went down to Houston on Monday morning and came back on Friday and, and, uh, yeah, I didn't see anybody for a while there, but you know, it was just, it was, it was ton of work, spend a ton of hours at the office and just try and soak up as much as you can. We had, and this was a thing that I think I, uh, underestimated was just the, the, uh, relationship with the bank group that, that was our, you know, main credit line at the time. It was not good. There have been some missteps and, and, you know, I totally understand lender's opinion on that some of that stuff i mean they're the first lost position you know they have capped upside and uh you know it just is what it is so you you just gotta you gotta figure out how to get them to give you enough time to 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 turn the ship around and you know so we cut gna by i think between 40 and 50 percent in 12 months and it really right-sized that to a position where i felt like you know we could be successful we needed to scale though i mean we needed to scale and and look the goal with this you know, once we got in there, we felt like, man, there's going to be a lot of carnage in this business. And what better way to take advantage of a of an industry that needs to consolidate than just being the consolidator? Now, if you're going to be the consolidator, you got to be willing to be consolidated. And so, you know, I think that's a that was something that I think our ownership position gave us a lot of street cred in was, you know, look, here to run this. We think we can go consolidate up a bunch of assets at the bottom point of a cycle, but somebody comes to us with the right offer, right situation, money's money, and we want to make money on the investment that we've made. So, so we did that for, like I said, about 15 months. Real quick. Yeah. You aligned you guys, because we, you said a second ago, like a lot of these businesses just create misalignment. And I don't know if that's like an oil and gas industry thing or if you see that pretty much in public companies across the board. But I think one of the unique part of your stories, I want to skip over it, is how the the incentives and alignment you created at Contango that was pretty much different than like the rest of your peer sets. Yeah, I mean, the first thing I did when I stepped in was was cut the CEO salary in half. And I think we've tried to maintain that mantra, certainly at the C-suite in our in our company ever since is... You know, if you're here for a salary, this is not the right place for you. Yep. Uh, I personally had a lot of my own money that I had put in. And that was one thing that I learned from day one with golf was I started out once I got enough confidence to to start going and pitching ideas. And but I didn't really know what I was doing. I was kind of in sales mode. And, you know, John, if he liked one, he'd go, OK, well, how much money are you putting in it? And I'd say, well, <laughs> I, I don't know. Like, well, I, I don't want to talk about anything that you don't want to put your own money in. And that was a huge, you know, learning lesson for me and something that I, you know, I think I'll always have as a a big thing for me is, is alignment via ownership. I mean, yeah. if people are putting their own dollars in, that's really big. Now, you know, you, you can't ask a, a, a large percentage of your workforce typically to do that in a business like this. So, you know, we try to create that alignment via long-term incentive plans, whether that be stock grants or PSUs, which are like stock grants, but a little bit more leveraged. Great if you, better if you do well, not good if you don't do well. And, and I'm totally fine with 
you know, making those bets. So that's something that we continue to this day. And I didn't even ask once I got in there for a couple of weeks and anytime somebody said, let's talk about compensation, I'd say, we're not there yet. Yeah. I, I don't like, I got so much stuff to fix right now. <laughs> we need to, well, let me focus on this other stuff. We'll get back to that. And so there was such a trust factor between me and golf that I, you know, I just never worried about it. I mean, we never had at golf. We never had really anything on paper. I mean, it was, you know, here's your salary and we'll figure out how we did at the end of the year and we'll figure out how we divvy that up. And I never really worried about it because, you know, we might disagree, but I, but I knew that he was going to treat me fairly and I trusted him. So when I was working for those couple of years and I, I didn't really have any, any options there, I, I, I stock options. I mean, I just didn't worry about it. I, yeah. I knew we'd figure it out. I knew if I did a good job, I would get compensated for it. And that's huge. So, yeah. But I, I, we try to do that in the company now. In the company was a, when it was standalone. The long-term incentive program. We wanted to make sure that every single person in the company, from lease operator, pumper, all the way up to the C-suite, was getting ownership in this business, and we wanted them to be thinking like owners because I think it, it's the most important thing people can be thinking about other than being safe. Yep. Okay. So you. You cut overhead, you spend 17 months or 15 months kind of turning around compensation incentives. All right. Now, now what's happening? Yeah. So at this time, I mean, the, the market's getting really nasty and it's funny. I mean, this was in 2019, so it, okay. it wasn't even like prices were really that nasty, but, but the bank market was really nasty. So this is, you know, pre COVID, but we're starting to see a lot of these businesses that, you know, I would say in general kind of borrowed money to drill and they drilled in the wrong places. And that can get you turned upside down really quickly in oil and gas. And so we're seeing a lot of these situations. And and at the time I'm talking to, who's now our president, Farley Dakin, a ton about this. He, he took over a distressed situation that was you know essentially owned by banks and worked that situation out. And so he was all of a sudden in the oil and gas business, his entire career had been you know, turn around and restructuring, but as a service provider. So he'd swoop in when, you know, XYZ private equity company had a second lien that, you know, was about to blow up because the company was either fraudulent or just underperformed or whatever and, and had to go kind of figure everything out. So he was used to being in that chaotic environment. And again, I, I feel like to the extent I do things good, you know, one of the best things that I do is, is, is being able to, and really, and really chaotic environments to be able to kind of see where we need to go rather than running for the hills. And so I'm talking to, to Farley, you know, almost every day at this point about things we're seeing, deals he's working on, deals I'm working on. And we ultimately decided, why don't we put these two things together? We'll buy your business. You come on and help us. You know, there was going to be a lot of distress at the time. And so we knew that, you know, his skill set was going to be one that that's not yeah, that whole turnaround restructuring business is very clicky industry. And it kind of, yeah, as you know, distress will move from industry to industry. And so I don't think the people that the players in those industries are typically not the best people to understand how to capitalize on bankrupt businesses, right? Because they don't know the rules of the game. They know the rules of the, of the game that they were playing, which is oil and gas operations, but they don't know how to deal with a bankruptcy court. So we bought his business, brought him on, 
and you know a deal that he was bird dogging at the time was white star petroleum and so you got to tell the whole story i will so i think we signed the deal to buy his company and kind of re-rack our business with a new credit facility from and and can i stop you for one second because i think what we're about to talk about is important Will you just tell real quick, what is the mission of Contango? Like, what is y'all's goal and how does it differentiate y'all from maybe other upstream operators? Good good question. So, you know, I think most of our focus is around the acquisition of assets and they tend to be lower decline and more mature. Okay. And in basins all over the country In basins all over the country. I mean, I I would say predominantly we are conventional Permian, conventional Wyoming, and then, uh, the mid-continent area, but we tried to be reactive to value. Now, obviously we're not going to go buy a million dollar deal in, you know, California or something. Cause we don't, you know, we, if it's some brand new area, you know, we need, we need a little bit bigger deal to kind of put a beachhead there, but we tended to buy production. And what we noticed was if you look, if you analyze the GNA of a lot of these businesses, at least at the time, and I think it's still the case, the GNA is so heavily skewed towards your development capital. So your geologists, your big land teams, your land brokers, your, you know, drilling engineers, completion engineers. I mean, you look at like the the amount, the percentage of GNA that's spent on development capital is massive. I mean, 80, 90 percent. And we're looking at the market and the valuations and we're saying, look, most of these companies, at least the ones that aren't in the Permian or some, you know, sexy basin, are trading at or below PDP value. So why would you have all this GNA unless you were just really, and look, if you're really convicted that I can go drill a bunch of wells and create better value than, than via acquisitions, then you should do that. Yeah. I think that's really difficult to do in small companies. Okay, And we know guys who have done it excellently, but that's not really how we're geared. So our view was, look, if we go buy a business, we should be able to cut 80 to 90% of the GNA out and keep all of what we want, plus all the call options on future drilling. And so that's really the niche that we've tried to, to, to carve out is buy assets, focus on trying to optimize OPEX rather than CAPEX, which is you know what not what most people are doing. And we're willing to accept higher lifting costs because of that. I mean, typically these mature and conventional assets lower decline assets. We, you know, White Star happened to be unconventional, but it was in, you know, kind of terminal decline. We would, what we say is we'd gladly trade higher lifting costs for lower capital intensity. And real quick, so you say we can, this is just dumb question. We can take out 80 to 90% of the GNA, but we have, you said the, the call options on future development. How would you develop it if you've cut out that GNA? That's already you already have the infrastructure built. You don't need more of it every time you buy a company. Yeah, that's right. I mean, okay. it, essentially. So, you know, if we already have, we're not doing much drilling at the time when we bought White Star, we were doing a little bit, but our view was we don't need three drilling engineers. I think the one that we already have, who Got we it. really like, can handle this. And if we need to backfill with additional people, then let's do that. But in a lot of cases, you're buying leases that are HBP'd. And yeah. so all those future drilling locations I viewed as free call options that I'm picking up along with the assets. Now, some of the leases expire sometimes, you know, and now you can't go drill that or you got to go release it. And that's a different, you know, different equation. And and some of that happened. I mean, it's bound to happen in, yeah. in some of these things. But 
we just found that the accretion to scale was very, very real. If you can buy assets that are at a, at a discount to, you know, what you view as, as, as the value of the production. Okay. So now we know what Contango does. Let's go back to Whitehorse because anybody listening is your White Star. It's just a cool story. Yeah. So White Star, you know, we, again, Farley had, uh, I mentioned earlier that Farley had kind of taken some bad credits out of a, out of a bank and had managed them and, and kind of had a, stepped in as a fiduciary to operate those assets. As you can imagine, they were in disrepair. He was able to go in and kind of, without much oil and gas knowledge, fix these things up and improve the operations of them. And and so it, it was a, I wouldn't call it a huge win for the banks, but, but it was much better than what was going to happen if he hadn't stepped in. And so that was a smaller deal. This, this, you know, White Star had, I think a billion two of invested capital. You know, they had a $325 million first lien. They had a $50 million second lien. So there was a ton of capital that had been spent on this deal. And I want to say it was 18,000 barrels a day at the time. And so that was a much bigger deal than the one he had done before. But the the bankers had talked and heard that Farley was working on this. So they reached out to him to say, do you think you could do that with this situation? Because we may need to credit bid this. And he said, maybe, but why don't we, I might be able to get up and down regular way on this thing because we were talking, I mean, he didn't disclose that to them, but he said, you know, I've got something I'm working on, might be able to get this done, you know, regular way. So, which is just buy it. Yeah. Just, just buy it rather than operate it uh, on the bank's behalf. So, so we announce our deal. We immediately go into scramble mode to figure out how to, how to bid on this white star asset. And I think one of the things that was very beneficial for, you know, having his distress expertise was there was already a auction essentially, and there was only one company that was qualified to bid on it. Now, you know, Farley went anyway, and they kind of told him like, Hey, the the bankers, I mean, and now we're talking about investment bankers who are selling the asset versus the commercial bankers who are kind of in charge with the loan and, and trying to figure out how to maximize value on that. So that, you know, the, the investment bankers always want competitive tension, right? You get one bidder, you're, you're not getting anything. And, you know, we thought that this thing was going to go away for a song. So the high bidder was at 115 million. And when they won that, you know, the next step is you go to the formal auction where essentially all the de- judge does is hit a gavel and say, you now own this asset. That team was offered the stalking horse position in this bankruptcy, which gives you a ton of advantages. Basically, you get a rofer on the deal, but you're a little bit naked in terms of you've already agreed to a price and and nothing can change between then and, and the auction. So they actually, this was an oil and gas business. They turned down the stalking horse bid. And, you know, we would say stalking horse is one of the best protections you can possibly have as a bidder. And we would always want to try and do that if we're in a position to do so. So so they had turned that down, so they lost a lot of the the privileges that they would get for having that designation. And so, you know, we immediately went into how do we get qualified to do this auction? And, you know, obviously the banks want the the investment banks want us to get qualified, but they also kind of don't want us to get qualified because if we come in and screw anything up, well, maybe they're the deal doesn't consummate and then they don't get paid. 
So we got them convinced that we could we could do this, and then they threw us a curveball. Thirty six hours before the auction, said, "Guys, this is great. We'd love to let you in. We need you to have backstop financing on this deal." And I mean, we were talking about you know this other groups at one fifteen. We were going to bid one twenty five. And they said, we need it in 24 hours. And we kind of went like, guys, we can't <laughs> do that. And, and, and we were convinced that the other group didn't have backstop financing. So that was what we were trying to argue is like, nobody has that. Nobody can get that right now. Well, in fact, they did have it. We found out later, but sort of serendipity. Travis Goff, his John's son was at a, at a breakfast and, and ran into somebody who does that kind of debt financing a different family office. And, you know, we tended to focus on equity at, at, at golf capital, but family offices are all very different. So anyway, this guy knew that we were working on the steel and said, you know, how's it going? And Travis said, well, I think, you know, we need whatever it was, 80 or $90 million of, of backstop financing in 24 hours. And he said, I'll do that. <laughs> and so like, literally, you know, I get a call. It's like, call this guy right now. And I called him and, you know, we stayed up all night and got the doc signed i went literally signed the docs and hopped in an uber and headed to you know george bush to fly up to oklahoma city because the the i think the auction was at nine o'clock the next morning and this is the last flight out it was like eight or nine o'clock i mean i was just scrambling to try and get there and i'm thinking you know if this flight gets canceled i got I'm two options yeah <laughs> well i'm driving and i can barely get there in time for the auction so like i'm gonna walk in with no sleep having stayed up all night that didn't sound very good. Anyway, luckily the the flight took off, got to Oklahoma City. Farley and our attorney, who was really Farley's attorney, he was just kind of working with Farley on the deal. They drove up that morning at four or five o'clock in the morning. So we all met up and had another call with the investment bankers that morning. They tried to shoot holes through our, you know, our our backstop financing. And after, you know, some hemming and hawing, they kind of let us in, but we had to get our wire in before the auction started or it didn't matter. We needed to put up 10%. So, you know, I'm on the phone with our CFO, you know, you know how wires go. It's oh, like, yeah. who yeah. knows where they go? You know, you hit a button and then they're in ether for, you know, sometimes five minutes, sometimes it's five hours. And, you know, so I, I'm just, you know, <laughs> you know, chewing them out, go, where is the, you know, so anyway, the wire hits about 15 minutes before the auction starts and, and our attorney's like, and, you know, he had told us a week before, like, guys, this is not going to happen. Like, this is, y'all have, have gotten a long way here. It's impressive. This is not going to happen. And he came up and said, guys, I think they're going to let y'all bid on this. And so, you know, we had the element of surprise because, you know, the other group did not know that we were, we were coming. So we showed up unannounced and slapped a bid on the table for, you know, 125. And you're at the courthouse. We're literally at the courthouse. And and I, I can't, like, this was the first, it's obviously not a huge company, but the first, like, big problematic bankruptcy that happened in oil and gas because the prevailing thought in the commercial banker community in oil and gas was that first lanes never lose money. And if you looked at the lost history over decades, like, that was borne out. Now, you don't want to go back to the mid eighties. Cause I think, you know, there was a lot of losses there, but if you start right after that, you know, there was this period for most of their careers that nobody had really seen big losses in a first lane. Well, now we're talking about buying this for one twenty five. The other group was one fifteen. you know, the, the effective date was way back. So 
effectively that that purchase price is much much lower than than what I'm talking about here. And so you're talking about, you know, even pre paying all the advisors and lawyers and everybody, you know, you're talking 15, 20 cents in the on the dollar for first lane, which is, you know, just totally unheard of. And so every and and when the company was headed into bankruptcy, they tried to drill their way out of it. So not only that, but you also had $150 million of drilling companies, completion companies, chemical companies who were all thinking that this company's okay, that had run up a bill and now became unsecured creditors. So, I mean, there's a hundred <laughs> lawyers in this room. And I mean, you know, all 10, 15 banks had two lawyers, every unsecured creditor. And, and so, you know, our lawyer walks in and, you know, slaps this PSA on the table that was the exact PSA that had been you know signed by the other group and said, we're at 125. You know, they didn't know what to say, but they pulled us into a room and said, like, who are you guys? And explain to us where you're going to get this money. And, you know, we went, here's who we are. Here's what we're doing. Unbeknownst to kind of everybody in the room, you know, Farley wasn't officially an employee yet. And, <laughs> and, and the lawyer wasn't officially engaged with us yet. I mean, we were all and, and so we're all explaining who we are and Farley works at Contango and this is our lawyer and this is what we're going to do. And, you know, let's go. And our lawyer is very convincing. He's, he's, you know, he's very good at kind of bankruptcy court and, you know, again, cottage industry, there's kind of advisors and, and lawyers and bankers, and they all kind of know one another and, you know, they know how to play the game and everybody else in the room, I, I would say, didn't know how to play the game as well. So, so they, they came back to us and said, okay, we agree that y'all are, are bidders, but we're going to give everybody a best and final. So you and the other group can come back and bid one more time. And we're going to do it kind of closed envelope. We didn't like that. We, because our view of the asset was that it was worth at least 175 million bucks. And we thought cash at close, if we bid 125, is going to be, you know, 85, 90 million bucks, something like that. So we knew we, we could drive a truck through what we thought this thing was worth for, and this was, you know, prices were, you know, somewhat depressed at the time. They were obviously much worse, you know, the next year, but we knew we had plenty of room. So we, we were kind of like, let's do open outcry. Like I don't, these guys weren't expecting us. They probably don't have the authority to go up a bunch on, you know, what they're willing to bid. And so we're, you know, we want open outcry. What uh, is open outcry? Well, just, and maybe I'm using the wrong term, but, but literally where you just, you know, we would keep going up in increments until oh, yeah. somebody was unwilling to bid anymore. Yeah. And so, you know, they did this closed door thing. And so, you know, we wanted to go up more cause we were like, look, we really should get this deal. I mean, this is, this is going to be a good one for us. And so we're, we're in the bathroom in the courthouse called Goff, who's, who's our chairman of the board at Contango at this point. And are, you know, kind of walking him through the math and why we need to go up and how much we need to go up. And, you know, he's like, yeah, go do it. So we're, you know, playing all these games in our head. You know, what are, what do we go to? And I think we went to 130 million. We decided 130, we'd go to there. We didn't think that the other group may be able to go up that high with that, you know, short of a, of a notice period. And they said, well, you know, they might, they might get 130 and $1 just to, you know, try and tie us. So we went 130 million and $2. <laughs> uh, so we submit it and, you know, the lawyers come back a little bit later and said, you know, 
you guys were really close and you did a great job, but, uh, you know, you got outbid and man, that was dejecting. I mean, we had, we had just killed ourselves for, you know, a, a while on this deal, but we went and got in the car and, you know, started heading back to Fort Worth and we got to Norman. And for those people who have been in Oklahoma, I mean, Norman's probably about 30, 35 minutes South of Oklahoma city. We get to Norman and our lawyer gets a call, you know, from one of these unsecured creditors and said, do you, you know, do you guys know what the other group bid? I said, no. And they said 130500000 And, you know, our, our antennas were up the whole time because the other group was a Oklahoma City-based company and... The, the debtor was an Oklahoma City company, too, and that's a very tight net oil and gas community. So, you know, we're kind of thinking like, yeah, I, I get that these people don't really want, you know, three Texans coming in here. And, you know, I, I guess I call myself a Texan. I grew up in Atlanta, but, I, you know, Texas is, well, is my home now. Adopted. Yeah, I that's appreciate fair. that. So, you know, they don't want us coming in here and, you know, messing with, you know, their their assets and their <laughs> their businesses. And so, you know, maybe we were being too cynical, maybe not. But, you know, the bottom line was the 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 unsecured creditor said, look, if you guys are willing to go higher than 130.5, I will stall this hearing until you get back. And so, I mean, we're immediately get off, turn around, driving back well above the speed limit. I don't know what it was, but <laughs> driving back well above the speed limit and, you know, screech up to the, to the building. And, you know, this guy's like, look, you don't have much time, but I'll buy as much as I can. So, you know, screech up to the building, Farley's driving, we're, we're in his car and we're about to start running in there. And our, and our, our lawyer says, guys, I got to go to the bathroom. <laughs> <laughs> and we're kind of going, are you kidding me, Eli? Like you, you got to go to the bathroom. Can you hold it for a little bit? He's like, I really can't. I'm like, all right, well, we'll, we'll run in there. Just make it as quick as you can. So, you know, we run back in the courtroom. Now there's, you know, all these hundred people are all in there. They're, you know, and the ladies. The, the judge up there who's a lady's, you know, going, we run a, or I guess this was not the judge. I'm sorry. This was the, uh, the, the kind of head bankruptcy attorney said, you know, we've run a full and fair process. And, you know, this oil and gas company is the highest bidder at 130.5 and we're ready to announce the sale to them. And, you know, I'm, I'm standing in the back and, and it's literally the lady's about to say, you know, hit the gavel and, and, and I didn't know what to do. I mean, there's a hundred people in here. I, you know, I don't know how to handle a bankruptcy court. And so I just raised my hand. I, like, I'm, stand, I'm sitting in the back and I just raised my hand. And this judge is like, who are you and why is your hand raised in my courtroom? I'm like, I, I don't know why my hand's raised, but I just need <laughs> you do to slow down. Yeah, exactly. I do have elementary school. I figured I'd try it here. And, you know, I, I'm fumbling through, you know, I don't know, but you need to hold on for a second. And then Eli comes running in and, you know, takes the same PSA. I mean, you know, writes 132.5 on it and slaps it on the table and says, you know, this, this was not a fair process. We're ready to go at 132.5 and we're ready to sign right now. Does anybody have a problem with that? And, you know, the judge is very upset at this point. But interesting <laughs> thing about bankruptcy is at the end of the day, there really aren't any rules. So, you know, the, the goal is to get creditors the best value they can get them. And, and, you know, they may not like it if you come in and do something that you're not supposed to, but they, they kind of have to allow it. And so, you know, she's going, well, I don't like anything that you guys did this entire process, but if you're at 132.5, then 
we're going to have to open this back up because I haven't, you know, the sale's not final yet. And so then they, you know, go back, everybody goes back to their corners and, you know, we're about to do, you know, we said, look, if they want to keep bidding, that's fine. But, you know, we are, we're at 132.5 and, you know, we suggest kind of in the courtroom, light of day, no closed envelopes. We just bid until somebody backs out. So they said, yep, we're going to do that. We're going to start in 30 minutes. So then we go back out, we call a board meeting like, Hey, how, how high can we go up here? And so, you know, we, we kind of talked through that with them and, you know, we had some more room, but it wasn't, it wasn't a ton of room, you know, then the other company ends up just walking before the, the kind of, you know, open auction had begun. So, so we won the deal, went back outside, Farley's got a parking ticket on his car. <laughs> I think it's framed in, in his office, you know, as we speak. So. Yeah, that deal quadrupled our production. And a lot of people, this was peak. This was in the Mississippi Lime. And this was peak Miss Lime hatred. You know, it's it's certainly not a tier one asset, but it's, you know, it it had a ton of production and a ton of cash flow. And funny, the the next week we went up there because part of the deal was, you know, we signed that deal on, I want to say September 26, 2019. We had to close by November 1st and both groups had to agree, but it was really our issue because this other group had already done a bunch of diligence. We had to sign, we had to close the deal by November 1st, or they were going to charge us a quarter million dollars per calendar day until we closed the deal. So, you know, we, we basically moved to Oklahoma city for, you know, five weeks and, you know, went in the office the, 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 the next, you know, Monday or whatever it was. And, you know, we met with some of the, some of the team, you know, some of the technical team and they were like, look, congratulations. You bought this asset. How many wells are we going to drill next year? And we said, zero, <laughs> we are drilling zero wells on this acreage. I mean, not that we won't, but our first focus has got to be optimizing OPEX and you know, what you found in this field in particular, but I think you saw this a lot at the time was you know, people had these big drilling programs. Well, they were trying to build all their facilities ahead of all that. So all the compressor stations and, and tank batteries and all these things were, you know, biggie size because they wanted to get to, you know, whatever the number is, you know, some massive amount, you know, 50,000 barrels a day or a hundred thousand barrels a day, something. And, and we just said, look, just let's cut all that back. And to these guys credit, you know, that wasn't really their guys and gals. To their credit, this was not really a, a, a business model they had ever looked at. But, you know, we cut 25 to 30% out of OPEX. That, that's turned out to be a great asset for us. And remember, like we bought it November 1st of 2019. You know, we were fortunate in that I don't mind taking some commodity price risk, but at the time, it was such a massive asset relative to the size of our business. I really felt like, we really felt like the, the best thing to do is to maximize your borrowing base, which is essentially how your credit facility is sized. Cause we felt like, Hey, you know, yeah, we might miss some of the upside on this, but as long as I have more money and more liquidity to go buy more stuff, this is, you know, that's, that's a lot more valuable than potential upside to commodity prices. And, you know, luckily we hedged, hedged. that aggressively. And then, you know, of course, what, five months later, COVID happens and, you know, We'd have been in deep, deep trouble if that was not hedged. But, you know, even even in spite of the fact that it wasn't fully hedged. And so, you know, our our 2020 cash flow was well below what we had, you know, kind of 
model, but we paid 96 million bucks at closing on that. And, you know, my guess is we probably generated cash flow of call it 150 million on that thing. And it's worth a couple hundred million. So, you know, and we haven't drilled a well there. I mean, just to give you an idea of the economics, you know, at least at the time, there were some ducks there, which are drilled, but uncompleted wells. They've already spent, you know, call it 40% of the dollars for, for, you know, putting a well online. And we still couldn't justify completing those wells at the time, given commodity prices. So, you know, you really wonder like, what is, what economics or what type curves were, were, were being run to support this investment decision? But yeah, that was the White Star story. And, and I think it's, you know, we, we do a pretty good job of being opportunistic. And yeah, I think that was a good example of that. But also, you know, again, having knowing the lay of the land in a, in a bankruptcy proceeding was really, you know, really valuable to us. All right. I want to talk about the relationship with Crescent. And then I kind of just want to dig into just what's going on in the market today. But let's start with Okay, we're done with White Horse and then White I think, Star. Or White Star. I keep calling it White Horse, <laughs> damn it. I just picture Wilkie riding in on a White Horse into this courtroom. Yeah, yeah. Oh, uh, hand raised. Drop the gavel. All right. What? How, how does everything work with Crescent? What's going on there? And then let's talk about the market today and how you're thinking about it. Sure. So, you know, taking a, a, a bit of a step back, you know, that was our first big acquisition. You know, we bought... Farley's business, Will Energy, but that was our first big acquisition. And then we made, you know, several more during 2020. All have turned out to be great. And really it was all about just, you know, are you willing to stomach, can you find the money and are you willing to stomach the dilution? And, you know, I the, the dilution never really bothered me. I mean, you know, when when we bought White Star, I think our stock went up to, I don't know, three, three fifty, something like that, three dollars and fifty cents. Well, by mid-2020, you remember like all the stocks went up like the first half of 2020 and then all these oil and gas companies at least just got crushed in the second half. So, you know, we're, we're bidding on stuff. We're winning stuff because we're the only guys on some of these unsexy assets that have the money to close. And why were they unsexy? Well, I'd say, you know, if, if people had assets, they really liked, they, they just weren't for sale in 2020. Okay. But we were able to buy some stuff that, that were bank owned. And I think, you know, banks at the time were kind of like, Hey, just get this off of our balance sheets. Like I'm tired of talking about assets that we, we own. And you know, you have these big syndicates of banks. So nobody really has a ton of exposure for the most part in these individual deals. And so, you know, we were able to, to, to wrangle some of those things at, at a time when just, you know, that's the tricky part about when, and you, I'm sure, you know, know this in real estate, but you know, in the market, when the shit hits the fan in the market, people don't want to sell anything. And that's why it's tough to really capitalize on that. That's another reason why I like the public markets, because there's always ways to capitalize on distress because there are people who are panicking. And I think, you know, businesses tend to do a better job of not, not panic selling, but you know, we own, we were, we were targeting low decline, but very unsexy assets and largely bank owned at, in that 2020 period. And they just wanted to, you know, they needed to focus on their bigger credits and their more, you know, make sure those are okay. And, and I think there was a willingness, you know, with some things to, to just dump them at whatever the, you know, whatever price you could get, like the Grizzly acquisition we did. I mean, that was a company that had already been bankrupt twice. And so now the banks owned it and they're kind of going, you know, get this out of here. But you know, our stock was at a buck 50 or a buck 40. 
doesn't feel good to to raise capital when your stock's down, you know, whatever, 60 or 70%. But, you know, it's clear that there was a ton of accretion to our business by doing that. And so, I, you know, that didn't worry me at all. You know, certain investors don't look at it that way. And I, I, I sort of struggle to see their point of view. What on would be their argument? Well, you raise capital at $3. Why yeah. are you raising capital a buck 50? Yeah. And my argument would be, well, you know, if Exxon's for sale at a billion dollars and our stock's at 25 cents, I'm going to go raise the money to buy it because that's massively accretive to our business. Right. Obviously, that's an extreme example, but yeah. it, it's all a relative value, right? When you're in, particularly when you're in the public markets. I mean, in the private markets, it may be tougher to say, I'll price something 50 cents in the hole if, you know, your investors aren't expecting there to be, you know, a 50 cent in the hole deal. But in the public markets, you know, everybody knows where everything's trading every day. So it's, you know, it's kind of like the market therapy is there. Yeah. So we had put a bunch of capital to work. We had bought a couple hundred million dollars worth of stuff by the, call it by February of 21. But we we really saw two things happening. One was we wanted to, we saw that there, there may be a bifurcation in the market going forward where there were haves and have nots. And our view was the bank market was going to continue to be very challenged. And we were trying to upsize our facility because we had bought all these assets. And I mean, we're you know, knocking down doors all over Houston, trying to get big banks to come into our facility. And, you know, they're spending two months on things and then coming back and saying, you know, we can come in for 5 million bucks. And it's like, yeah, that that's just not, you know, w- we can't spin our wheels like this. So then we went and said, okay, because I always liked the bank debt market better than unsecured. Why? Because banks don't want to own your assets. Okay. And distressed investors do in many cases. Yeah. So you've got a, I won't say a friendly counterparty, but you've got a counterparty that is more willing to work with you to work out a solution. And look, I was on the other side of the table when I owned those bonds at, you know, 30 cents. It was like, we're willing to listen, but you know, I'd really like to just get paid off at par, you know, when this thing matures and I think you've got the asset value to do it. So go do it. So bank market wasn't going to work. So we're talking to, you know, our investment bank relationships about doing a bond deal and they're saying yeah you're a first-time issuer you're kind of small you're probably looking at eight to nine percent of you know your kind of your initial bond deal and i said well you know that's you know keep in mind bank debt at the time is three percent so that's a that's a big delta and we would look at a lot of these companies that had bonds in the market particularly some of the i would call them you know lower quality investment grade businesses and I'd look at their credit metrics and we were better on every single metric because at the time, you know, we bought all this cash flow. We hadn't been spending a bunch of money. We had been, you know, banking it and then raising our credit facility. And, and so at the time we had really driven our, our leverage ratio down to half a turn or something. I mean, it was very low. So I'm going, well, well you know, how come these guys are borrowing at three and a half percent and I have to borrow at eight and a half percent. So, well, it's size, you know, size is the only size is the differentiator here. So we were like, okay. Maybe that's an option, but let's go get bigger. Like we just need to figure out a way to get bigger because if we can get to investment grade and we can keep buying the same stuff that we're buying, which we think we can buy at a, a higher discount rate just because there's less competition, but we can do it while borrowing money at, at a much cheaper rate. Like that's going to be a big competitive advantage for us. So we went and kind of met with all the private equity firms down in Houston to, you know, talk through look, we need, we need more capital so that we can scale this thing. We think we've got a good 
you know, business model. We think we've got a, a bit of a unique business model, but we need, we need a partner essentially. I mean, there's only, you know, so much that golf can do, you know, and it was golf and his, you know, a lot of his ecosystem that was, that was really funding a lot of these deals. And so one of the groups we met with was, was KKR and KKR had their fund one business, which they were, you know, interested in doing something strategic on. And so we looked at that and said, you know, this is a big, a big business here. I mean, it's, you know, a couple billion dollars. And, and, you know, I think at the time our market cap was, I don't know, eight or 900 million, something like that, maybe a billion. I know it was a billion off and on, but, you know, we could really create something here that allows us to, you know, have better access to the bank market, kind of that bifurcation between the haves and have nots. And then we can also have good access to the debt capital markets, which is where we really need to get if we want to scale this, because the bank market is is just going to get a lot smaller. And so we need, you know, the the idea is really to use the 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 credit facility as as acquisition financing, and then you term it out in the in the bond market. Now you've got a you know a a fully undrawn credit facility, and you can use that for acquisition. So that was kind of the you know the thought process. Now. Look, the I won't call it downside, but you know, they were their expectation was if we're going to merge these businesses together, then you got you know we're going to run it. And as guys who had you know a big chunk of our net worth, most of our net worth into this business, all I all I care about is trying to you know maximize the value of our assets. And you know there was no social issues. And back to your question about kind of incentives, I think a lot of the social issues that exist exist because you know there's not that same level of alignment, you know, in certain instances, if you, if you don't own any stock and you're making 3 million bucks a year in cash running a business, why would you entertain doing anything until somebody kicks you out? I mean, I I don't, it's, it's fairly obvious to me. And, and I think it's something, you know, I certainly learned on the buy side doing investing in public markets that you didn't find a lot of, and this is everywhere, but you know, just an example people do not, they way underestimate the, you know, power of incentives. And so I'd have a guy call and pitch like some of the parts on this, you know, it's worth three times, you know, what it's trading at right now. And I go, okay, I, I, I may believe you on that, but you know, the CEO makes more money in a year in cash than they own in stock. So what incentive does he have to sell off assets to realize you're some of the parts valuation if it's going to put him out of business? Like he's not going to do that. So it doesn't matter what the assets are worth until somebody can, you know, somebody with an economic incentive here to do something does something. And I think that's pervasive across, you know, the world. It's human nature. Yeah. Munger talks about like, he says, you know, I understand incentives better than, you know, he thinks anybody in the world or the top 5%, I think was his quote. And, you know, I've underestimated him my whole life. And I, I, I think that's very true. So. We did the merger with them. Basically, all of the Fund One assets and all of our assets were combined, created Crescent Energy, which was a nod to uh, John Goff's, you know, his real estate business was Crescent Real Estate. So that was a nod to him. He became the chairman of the board. And then, you know, essentially they're operating subsidiaries underneath the KKR team who manages that crescent energy business in terms of the public companies so they manage you know bank relations debt capital markets investor relations equity capital uh guidance you know sec filings all that kind of stuff 
and and then also shared services, IT accounting, that kind of stuff. And we are an operating subsidiary along with, you know, the two largest ones are ourselves and Javelin Energy Partners. There's also a mineral business that's that's underneath there as well. But those are the two big operating businesses. And, you know, we we like the complementary nature of those two. You know, we're buying lower decline assets that, you know, have much longer tails, but maybe don't have as big of, you know, capital reinvestment opportunities. They still they're still there but don't have as big a capital reinvestment opportunities as, you know, other businesses in the industry. Javelin, on the other hand, does, you know, what they call mid-cycle shale development, which is, you know, they're not going to try and pioneer a new play or anything, but they'll go into plays that are fairly well understood and then invest capital in, in drilling completion and development of those assets, but they're much higher decline. So, right. you know, you, you, there's kind of a yin and yang there between our assets and their assets that we think's you know, very complimentary. And I think, you know, one of the things that, you know, in my opinion, and I, I'm, I'm not involved in the, you know, public company, but for being, you know, running one of the operating subsidiaries, but, you know, I do think one of the misunderstood aspects about Crescent Energy is, you know, our decline rate is much lower than the rest of the industry. And, I think people may have lost sight of that in general in the industry, just because all the companies look so homogenous in terms of what they are, because they're all kind of unconventional. And you know, you gotta you gotta keep spending money to keep you know keep production from from falling off a cliff. And and I think you know maybe that's not very well understood in in our business. So we operate a an operating subsidiary. Like I said earlier, I mean we're always very long term incentive focused, but now our long-term incentives are tied to the performance of our assets versus the entire, you know, public company and all the subsidiaries. You've dealt with analysts and, and you understand the public markets obviously really well now. Like what you just said, people don't understand that we have a, a lower decline curve than than our competitive set. You're obviously saying that it's probably in the shareholder letters. It's probably at what point does the market like understand that? Is it and like, why wouldn't an analyst pick up on that? And how do they eventually, even if it's related to this or really any company that's misunderstood? Yeah, I mean, it's a it's a great question. I, I would say, you know, we when we were standalone Contango, we had one analyst. It took us a while to get one. We were real proud of having one. And, and you know, she was a great. And, uh, and, and you get one. You So you talk to all the analysts and say, somebody, please just cover us. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And, and, you know, certainly for that first one, it was like, Hey, I don't need, you know, JP Morgan to be the first person to make it up. Cause they have no interest in covering this. There's not a lot of float and all that, but I think you can go to some of the smaller investment banks and yeah. kind of pitch, Hey, if you're early on this and we're right, then you're right. And, you know, that's when people can really make, you know, your clients can make a lot of money and you can, you can really, you know, hit it out of the park in terms of your, career development if you're the first person making a call on a business now it it's you know riskier yeah but you know if you can convince somebody hey being early is is going to be really beneficial for you here and but it's it's a much more difficult business to to model and to value i think because we would say yeah we've got capital you know we've got places to redeploy capital but the main place we're going to focus is on inorganic because if i've got you know drilling inventory that is HBP'd, you know, I, I have time to go develop that. 
I'm not going to have time to pick up all these distressed assets when the market turns around. So I want to focus on that right now. But that's not easy to model. So they just say, okay, well, what's your decline curve? Let's keep G&A flat or even in inclining, and we're just going to decline your production like a PDP blowdown. You know, that doesn't work. I mean, if you're really doing a PDP blowdown, you need to, we would have needed to cut G&A substantially to make sure that, you know, most of that value and most of that cash flow would actually go to shareholders rather than being liquidated into the hands of G&A. And so, you know, they'd say, well, how do we model it? And so, well, you know, we're going to make acquisitions that are creative and that's how this is going to become a bigger and bigger company. And that's just not easy to model. What is easy to model is if I had 10,000 acres of land and I had a type curve, then I can hand it to the analyst and say, we got 2000 sticks that we can drill here. Just we're going to run three rigs and, you know, throw it in your model and you're going to get a really nice, neat number that pops out. (laughs) And that's what people, I mean, and and that's, I mean, it's not easy. It's, it's pretty complicated, you know, Excel modeling, but that's, that's the industry standard. So everybody knows how to do that. And it's very easy to have a really neat, you know, PV number that looks really big if you do that. I mean, it works every time. And so I think that's a really easy business to pitch as a sell side analyst. Ours is much more difficult. But if you hand them your model and say, well, start telling people about this model, are they, do analysts tend to be hesitant and say... We still want it to be our model. We can't trust your model. Well, yeah, I mean, we wouldn't, we wouldn't, we couldn't hand them our model. You've okay. got all sorts of, you know, restrictions okay. around that. So got it. they need to put together their own model. We can answer whatever questions we can. Interesting. But, you know, obviously if they're, if we deem anything material, we need to file an 8K to, to, you know, let everybody else know that. So you, you can't hand them your model, but yeah, I mean, I think, look, we're a, we're a, unique business, at least in the upstream space, be it Crescent. We're new, you know, it's a, it's a structure that is, that, it, that is not typical in, yeah. in upstream, but I would say it's, you know, it's typical in REITs and, you know, private equity. And, you know, there's tons and tons of capital that's, that's in these types of structures. And so, you know, that, that, and, and by the way, you know, KKR controls the, the vast majority of shares at this point. So our view was, you know, they effectively control the company right now. So what difference does it make if it's, if it's, you know, formal or informal and, you know, if we think they're going to be able to sell the story and over time, you know, you're going to get new shareholders who believe in the story and, you know, that will by definition, you know, dilute the rest of us down, but you know, we're fine with that. I mean, that's, that's what we got to do if we're going to continue to consolidate and use, you know, this balance sheet to, to really scoop up assets, you know, over the next five or 10 years while you've still got a lot of noise in the market. All right, let's just spend a little time here. I was having lunch with somebody the other day and they said something like, the, you could tell the world that you own a, a business in the porn industry and they'll like you more than if you tell them you own an oil and gas industry. Do you have any optimism or what's the current temperature or optimism that capital flows will come back into fossil fuels or is it going to get worse before it gets better or does it ever get better again? I don't know if it gets worse before it gets better. I mean, that's always tough to tell. I mean, I, I've, I've always found I'm everybody, but I'm certainly, I'm much better at trying to figure out what things are going to look like five or 10 years down the road than six months. I'm really bad at that. I think most everybody is, whether they tell themselves differently or not. You know, I think, I think the, the longer term is, is easier to see. And, you know, from my purview, first off, you know, 
having a lower carbon footprint and a lower environmental footprint and being safe is, you know, we think very important for any business, but certainly for oil and gas. Yeah. And I think, you know, oil and gas didn't do a good job of that for a while and they didn't worry about it. And now I think people are focused on it. And, you know, I, I see, we see no incongruity between being able to operate older assets and do it in a, you know, safe and environmentally friendly manner. So our view is always, let's make this asset better than it was before. Yeah. And the flavor of the things that, you know, we buy is typically either something is distressed or something that was owned by a very big company that, that didn't really focus on it very much. And I think in both cases, we're able to put some TLC into that, you know, to say either they didn't have the resources or, you know, capital resources, they didn't have time. And in either case, you know, I think we can go in and invest the time in understanding how, how do we operate this responsibly and, you know, do methane flyovers and, and, you know, try and, you know, retrofit your, your, your tank batteries so that, you know, your, your spills are less likely and, you know, things like that. I mean, yeah. it's, it's not, they're not big dollars, but they're, they're impactful, you know, on your ability to operate in a, in an environmentally friendly way in a safe way. And, you know, that's, that's really important on the alternative energy side. I mean, where you are right now is that's the topic du jour, you know, and I think it's two reasons. One is, you know, everyone would think that, you know, if we could be solely powered on wind, then, then maybe that's a lower carbon footprint there, you know, it's tough to tell, frankly, but I, but I would agree that, you know, if that was possible, it's probably, you know, a lower carbon footprint. Now, again, you got to build the big windmills and how long those things actually last and what, what, what happens when you junk them and all that stuff. Those are, those are difficult questions to answer, but, you know, I think there's a desire from everybody's standpoint, but particularly people who are not, well, I won't say particularly, there's a desire on everybody's standpoint from everybody's standpoint to do this in a more responsible way. Now, some people would say oil and gas is bad. I don't want anything to do with it. I only want, you know, alternative energy. And there's two problems with that. One is, you know, I think the incentives are in place right now to where you're, you're, you're misallocating capital. So, you know, whether it's wind or solar or geothermal, those are great options for certain areas of the world. But you can't just say if we put a wind farm everywhere in the world, you know, it's linear. So if it works here, just do it a thousand times and then we're going to be able to power the United States. I mean, you know, there, there are areas where the wind doesn't blow. I mean, that should be obvious, but, <laughs> but like, you know, that, that's, that's something that you need to think about. But if you're getting, if there's a ton of capital flooding and then there's a bunch of government incentives to try and, you know, incentivize development, you may put things places where they don't need to be. Yep. But, you know, it makes you feel good. Yep. And I I think we need wind, we need solar, we need geothermal. We need to focus those in the areas where they can have the biggest impact or the highest utility because we're going to need all of it. Yep. And we're going to need all of it. So, and and oil and gas are going to be a big part of that. So, you know, I think people are going to have to accept a lower return in alternative energy for the most part. And and if you're not reinvesting any money in the, you know, at least right now, the best bang for your buck, be it oil and gas, you know, those are the most efficient ways to power 
homes and cars and everything else right now. Now, again, maybe in the future, you're going to have a better answer, but, you know, starving an industry of capital when it's the most efficient way to power people's homes and, and get them to work and all that is, is not a good answer. Yeah. So, you know, my view has always been, look, we need to have a, a rational discussion about this. And I think it was Mike Worth at, at, at Chevron that said, it's not wind or solar or oil and gas. It's all of the above. Yep. We need all of the above. And, and, you know, particularly in developing countries, I mean, you know, you think about, you know, I mean, even natural gas, like the amount of infrastructure that's required to really power a, a country with natural gas, which we have here in the United States, and it's great. You know, I, that's just not all that feasible in, you know, Africa right yeah. now. I mean, the energy density of petroleum is just much, much higher than natural gas. Now, maybe we'll get there over time, but, you know, when you've got people, you know, burning dung as their energy source, you know, that's not nearly as good as oil. Yeah. And I, I think, you know, the way, the, the, the thing that I think the world needs to be most focused on is how do you bring the most people out of poverty? And that's cheap energy, period. End of story. Cheap energy is the answer to everything. And I think people have taken their focus off of that. And, you know, again, we need to be responsible and we view being a responsible operator as, you know, your uh, entry cost into being allowed to be in the industry. But, uh, you know, until there's a more rational discussion about what is needed and what's realistic, my guess is oil and gas prices keep going higher yep. because until that happens and you have people focused on, you know, deploying the amount of capital into this industry that, that, that is needed, you know, to help power the world's growth and to get people out of poverty, prices are just going to keep going up because supply is going to be constrained. Yep. Yeah. I don't think it has to be a transition. It's like you said, it's all the above the word transition makes it seem like we have to get off one and get on the other. And, and we haven't seen any of the unintended consequences yet. I mean, people talk about them a lot now, whether it's lithium mining and you know, all that kind of stuff, but you just don't, you don't know yet. Yeah. All right. If, as you look at just like, if we just take America, there's a lot of talk on demand, but where is all the supply going to come from is the Permian. It's kind of, again, from somebody on the outside looking in, just reading is like, we kind of know how much oil is left in the Permian. We think tier one technically has been drilled, like where else will supply come from? Yeah. I mean, it's a, it's, it's a good question because shale has really been the majority of the world's supply growth for, you know, a number of years now and it's running out now, you know, are there shales that are perspective for oil and gas in other countries? Absolutely. But it's not that easy because nobody owns their own minerals in other countries and, and, you know, Obviously, you've got lots of governments who are now very hostile towards towards oil and gas. So I just you, know, you can't see that type of, you know, I mean, production growth that you saw in the U.S. You know, they're not the countries aren't as commercial. The, the you know property laws aren't as well developed. And then again, I think the most important thing is there's no mineral interest, private ownership, which really drives a lot of that incentive to to develop. Yep. So. I don't know. We'll figure it out. I mean, again, it goes back to the, to the, all of the above, but I think what's going to happen is you go, you know, you drill all the tier one locations and, and those do great at, you know, 70 bucks or maybe even 60 bucks, maybe even 50 bucks. I don't know. But 
once you get done drilling those, now you got to go drill your tier two locations and you're spending the same money or maybe more, but you're getting less yield. So your, your type curve is going to be lower. So you're, you know, you're drilling, your lifting costs on a, on a DNC basis is going to be, let's say it doubles or it goes up 50%. Well, you know, I think what's going to happen is you're going to see people continue to migrate from kind of tier one to tier two to tier three. But by definition, the only way to do that is if the price is at a level that, you know, incentivizes them to drill their tier two and tier three locations because they are less economic if you leave price flat. And then, and then the biggest thing, I mean, the, the, the biggest thing to me, back to the all of the above is, is nuclear. I mean, you know, I think that's something that is, is, is just a really interesting history of nuclear energy. I mean, there was, you know, two different predominant technologies and the one they ended up going with was, was really the fusion that was, you know, in a very pressurized container they did it because the, 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 the plutonium that you're creating was weapons grade. So, you know, you can kind of create this plutonium, not for, not just for power plants, but also for nuclear bombs. And that was where kind of the, the fork in the road, that was the direction they went. Well, I think, you know, there are safer ways to develop nuclear power. Now, are they as well developed? No, because nobody's put capital into them in a number of decades. But I think, you know, that's starting to be a big focus area for, you know, and there's a number of competitors out there that that uh, you know that are playing in that space. I certainly have you know my opinions on on that, but you know the reality is is they're all you know somewhat you know immature. But I think in the next decade or two decades, you know that's that's something that I think can be figured out. And I mean, you talk about the greatest you know gift to the world that could be invented. It's you know safe nuclear power. And I think it will get done and I think it'll happen in our lifetimes. I may be wrong, but you know, if you think about that as a real transition fuel, I think we've got plenty of time to get to that spot. And to me, that's really, it's not the only answer. Cause again, we're going to need all the above for a while, Yeah, but to me, it's the best answer. It fills the biggest gap. Why do you think someone like Elon Musk hasn't paid attention to it? And he's focused on batteries with how smart he is and how obvious, not just you, but a lot of the conversation is like nuclear is pretty obvious to a lot of people. You could say it doesn't fit some of the agendas because it can't be weaponized as much, I guess. But why was why would somebody that I guess everybody looks to like Elon is the savior of energy? Why do you think he's put like no even words behind it, really? I mean, it, it really is a great question. And frankly, it's one that I've I've thought about. And I, I don't have a good answer for yeah. you on that. I mean, you know, obviously he's got a big bet on EVs and batteries. It's probably it. You know, it there's a lot of incentives there to to, you know, see that through. But I, I don't I wish I had a better answer for you than that. All right. Last question. Um on the industry, is there anything as it relates to upstream, like technology wise, we had fracking, whatever it's been 20 years or something like that. And, and, and correct me if I'm wrong, when we drill oil out of the ground, even if it's fracking, not a hundred percent of it comes out, no. even in like 80% of it's still left in the ground, something huge more. Well, and unconventional. I mean, if you look at primary kind of conventional development, right. You can, you can maybe get 15 maybe 20. But if you're talking about unconventional where you're going down and fracking and drilling horizontally, 
you know, it's in the single digits. Okay. So there's this great argument that like, there's still, it's not that we're running out of oil. We're running out of technology to get oil out of the ground. Is there anything like even cool going on that could say there's something that's going to come that can get us another 50, if you could just get another 15%, you've basically recreated the industry again. Yeah, that's right. Cool? Well, uh, you know, there, there are some things people are trying. I mean, EOG is, is kind of a, you know, always thought of as being on the leading edge of technology in the industry. And, you know, I have a ton of respect for those guys. They're very secretive for the most part. They don't really talk about what they're doing, but I know, I know in the Eagleford, they were working on essentially, a, a they call it a huff and puff, but it's, you know, it, it's basically a, you know, enhanced oil recovery technique on their Eagleford assets. Now they were working on that apparently, you know, I don't know, a year, two years ago, jury's probably still out on that, but you know, something like that could be very interesting. And so, you know, not that we're going to pay for it, but you know, if, if you think about buying, you know, unconventional assets, like a white star that may not be, you know, in the best basins, that's kind of a call option that you're buying too. Yeah. Right. So I, I think there's, there's things like that. And, and look, people always say we're, run, we're running out of oil, right? We're not running out of oil. We're running out of what they mean is we may be running out of oil that we can economically produce at this price. Yeah, yeah. But until we find a substitute for the actual commodity, prices are just going to adjust to, you know, whatever the capital costs and the cost structure of the business is to, to produce the amount of oil that the, that the world demands. All right. I kind of want to bring it back where we started. I have two notes that I've just been staring at since we started and then we'll, we'll bring it home. The first was you started in the public markets. Obviously, you kind of said there was a period in 2014 where it just became obvious that you were going to kind of go all in on oil and gas for a while. But before that, you had been a generalist. When you and and just in like the conversations we've had at lunch and things, it's, it's obvious to me you understand business really well. When you're looking at an investment opportunity, industry agnostic. What are things that are happening in businesses that get you really excited to say, I should pay attention to this? Yeah, I think that's that's very much stylistic in terms of, you know, what that answer would be. You know, I, I will say that my I talked about earlier, I mean, I'm, I just kind of by nature, I'm, I'm more of a contrarian. And so were you uh, taught that or you've just been always been a contrarian? I think I was taught that in at golf capital, but I, but I think it was something that was, you know, I was always easy. That, to. Was, that was the way I, I kind of always was. I just yeah. was able to learn it in a, in a business sense. And so I've, I've tended to find that I can, I can do pretty well in cyc cyclical industries because there's a lot of panic when things go wrong. So the other nice thing is I don't, I don't necessarily have to go dig into a company that stock's been doing this for a while, right? I mean, there's a lot of things that do that for a while. I mean, everything, you know, goes up over time or most, the market goes up over time. Most companies actually go down over time, but you know, the winners more than make up for the losers. So that's why you see the S and P kind of over time doing this, but you know, that makes it a little bit easier for me as a, whether it was a golf capital or, or kind of my personal, you know, investing, which I, I still like to do and have kind of a passion for that. I don't have a lot of time to dig through thousands of different companies. So it's easier for me. And even at golf capital, again, you know, small staff, it was easier for me to be reactive. So oil has gone from an hundred to 50 and Hey, the stock's gone from 
12 to 50 cents. You know, the market's pricing it as if it's going bankrupt. Let's dig in and see whether it's going bankrupt, because if it's not, it's probably going to go up by multiples. And I, I that's another thing I, I tend to like to focus on is, is, you know, can I buy something that A, I can hold for at least a decent amount of time, so I'm not paying, you know, short-term taxes on it? And then B, is it something that I could see being a, a multi-bagger? Because that can make up for for a lot of mistakes if if you're right on one of those. Now, I've I've, you know, there are other businesses that, you know, for one reason or another, I, I love the idea of kind of, you know, focusing on these high quality businesses and, you know, you just buy it and forget it because, you know, it takes me the same amount of time to analyze and assess an idea that I can hold for six months as something I can hold for 10 years, but there's a lot more value in the latter, right? So, you know, I'd love to find these businesses that are cheap and high quality. They're just, you know, they're, they're much harder to find. So, I do a little bit of that, but I would say, you know, most of the success I have had has been, you know, dive into a cyclical business when everybody's headed for the exits. If you, if you're the only guy running into the burning building, you know, you, you don't have to be the most knowledgeable person to know what to do because you're playing off psychology. There's a lot of things outside of maybe industry knowledge that, that, that you can bring to bear, you know. Like somebody who's a read analyst right now, you know, they're, they're probably looking at stocks that they say, this is an amazing stock, but it's down 80%. You know, I have no credibility with the people I'm talking with anymore because I told them to buy it, you know, when it was five times higher or something. I mean, and, and that's yeah. an extreme example, but, but that's, that's what happens. So you get these people with tons of industry knowledge, or maybe they're a, you know, hedge fund manager who focuses on on REITs or they, you know, run a private equity firm that only focuses on office buildings or something, you know, you have the most knowledge, but you have all the scar tissue and you're managing problems and you're just trying to figure out a way to, to make it to the next day. And if you can step into an industry that's just in disarray, I think there are a lot of advantages that you can have without maybe being as smart as everybody else is. I love that. All right. I want to bring it back to golf. He was, from my understanding, worked under Rainwater, and Rainwater has this prolific history of creating a lot of the world's great or the country's greatest investors, maybe the world. And then you kind of said, I went to golf and I just got to hang around the hoop and I was a young guy, very similar pattern to how, like, what is, what did you learn from golf? What has he taught you? But also like one day you're going to be golf's age and you know, God willing, your career continues to take off. What is the magic of that idea of letting young people come in and hang around the hoop that kind of take the ball and run with it? It seems to have been a unique pattern and kind of this lineage of folks that keep coming out of the system. Yeah. I mean, I would say the first thing is, is really intellectual freedom. I mean, I, I, you know, and even when I was, you know, super green, I mean, super green, didn't know anything. You know, I didn't sit there all day with a list of tasks that he wanted me to do. It's like, go do this and this and this. And, you know, you do all these, you know, rote tasks and you clock out at the end of the day and you come back the next day. There was never any of that. And, you know, I would say early on in my career, I wasn't very productive. I mean, that's kind of the downside of that. But it's, you know, his view was, you know, you're here to create value and, you know, let me know when you see it. But it wasn't this thing where it's like, 
if you haven't come up with an idea this week, like I'm going to give you a, you know, I'm going to give you a talking to, I mean, yeah. I, you know, you go months and months, if not a year without coming up with anything. And, and there was never this pressure to, to put money to work just because I have it, or I, I want you to prove yourself. And so, you know, it was, we'll go anywhere, we'll do anything, but we're looking for value and we want to make returns and have some fun doing it. And, and so that allowed me to, to look at a bunch of different things, a bunch of different industries. Sometimes I'd spend a year on in an industry and come back and say, yeah, there's not really anything interesting to do there. And rather than saying, well, hey, you just wasted a year of, you know, my money that I was paying you, it was great. Let's go find something else to do. So, you know, that was, that was a big thing for me. And then I think the other thing, and, and John talks about this a lot, you know, about how, you know, when Rainwater hired him, he wasn't quite sure kind of why. You know, he had worked with him, but he was an, a, an accountant and he says, you know, Rainwater believed in me more than I believed in myself. And I think, you know, that is a, is, is certainly been my experience too. I mean, there were times when I felt like, man, I don't know if this is going to work out. And, you know, he's just a, a huge cheerleader of saying, you know, just stay focused, keep your head down. And, you know, I think that helped me immensely. And then I think the other thing that, you know, that's going on there is, you know, I'm in an office every day with, I'm, I'm assuming this is the same way with rainwater, but I was in an office every day for 10 years with John and, and, you know, he's kind of this, you know, very well-respected and almost kind of mythical person in a lot of circles about, you know, how he's been able to, to do deals and make money and, and kind of follow on the, the, the legacy of rainwater. But, you know, I was in a really unique position to see, you know, he's, yeah, he's all that and more, but he's also a regular guy. And, you know, he has problems and solutions and, you know, bad days and good days. And, and, you know, so that really taught me like, Hey, yeah, I get it. John's really smart and really good at a lot of things that maybe I'll never be as good at at those things, but maybe there are other things that I'm better than him at. And there is no reason why I can't do what he's doing. And that was kind of my view. And my guess is once he spent some time with rainwater, he kind of said, the same thing. You know, that guy does some great things. I do some great things. There's nothing inherently stopping me from doing, from getting to where he is. Yeah. And, you know, I, I talk a lot about, about, you know, the key to life is low expectations, but that's really (laughs) for, for your expectations of other people. Yeah. Your expectations of yourself have got to be really high, but you know, you're going to be really happy if your expectations of everybody else is maybe a little bit lower. That is a perfect way to end the conversation. Thanks so much for joining me today. Thanks for having me, Chris. This is awesome. I hope you've enjoyed this episode of the Fort Podcast. Be sure to follow us on your favorite podcast platform or hop on over to YouTube to watch full video episodes if that's what you prefer. For more information, you can check out thefortpod.com.